You're listening to. Welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Ri Ra Yu. And we are here today to discuss our November 2023 book club pick, Squire by Sara Afagi and Nadia Shamas. Um, it is a graphic novel about a young girl named Isa who seeks to become a squire in service of her empire. Um, the book takes place in a um, fictional, I guess, it's not exactly a fantasy world, but like an alternate history uh, Middle East in the Middle Ages. And yeah, um, lots of very timely subjects um, covered in this graphic novel. Yeah, I mean, it's been a while since we've read a graphic novel for our book club podcast. So it was really nice to have a change of pace. I read this on Kindle and I had not known that there was a new feature added where uh, it lets you like... Um, zoom in not zoom in but like there's a mode where it's kind of like a powerpoint where it goes by panel by panel yeah i think that's they acquired that when amazon bought um comicsology i believe because that was that was a function in the comicsology app for a long time yeah so um it was my first time like reading a graphic novel that way and i really liked it it was <laughs> like um i don't know it, it looked like i was reading a storyboard Usually when you look at like traditional uh, comic books, you see everything on the page and it can, depending on like what your experience is with um, reading graphic comics, it can, it can get a little bit overwhelming because you're like, where, where do my eyes go? (laughs) Um, So it was nice to just have it be um, directed for you. Yeah, I read this book. I actually acquired the actual physical graphic novel. And as you can see, I'm showing it to Rira on my video screen. Um, apologies to all our podcast listeners. It is a pretty, it's it's a it's a beefy um, graphic novel. Um, I think it's like 300 plus pages. But it went pretty, I usually read graphic novels at a pretty good pace. Um, so I kind of wish I did have like the um, panel function that you had to kind of slow down my 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 enjoyment but it was it was a really fun read um always love graphic novels i grew up reading comic books so um graphic novels is is a very um digestible form of um reading for me which was pretty cool yeah so a little bit of background from the author and illustrator so nadia shamas is a palestinian american writer uh she's best known for creating corpus a comic anthology of bodily ailments as well as being the writer of miss marvel uh stretch thin and uh, Sarah Alfagi is a Jordanian-American illustrator and creative director from Boston. And uh, she's known for her work for Marvel Comics, Star Wars, and a bunch of other children's publishing uh, works. So um, it was really cool to, ha- to read a work by two Arab-American um, creators. It's, there is a sad shortage of, um, you know, like, Arab American creators in the comic space. Same thing with like BIPOCs. I feel like we're seeing a change in the last like five years, which is why it was really nice to read Squire because it's introducing a world and culture that is not really prevalent in the comic spheres. And yeah, I mean, we, we've we covered it several times throughout the life of this podcast, but um, when we cover, when we say we cover books by Asian, Asian American authors, we, we mean that in the broadest sense. So encompassing all of Asia, not just East or Southeast, but also Central and West. We try to, um, we, we try to, I guess, pitch the broadest tent um in our space just because like we were said there aren't enough stories and we we want to highlight as many as we can within within her purview so it was really cool to read um this book and to you know get into this world i guess before we get started on the book proper it was really cool to see the the afterward notes by sarah and how she mentioned that like when she first came up with squire it was set in a high fantasy world and the main character was supposed to be like an orc trying to pass as a human i thought that was really interesting because um, I think they also mentioned in, in the afterward too that like many times in especially European high fantasy, orcs are kind of the stand-in for Orientals, like the Orient, and 
back then the Orient meant like the Middle East, right? Yeah. I mean, if you look at Lord of the Rings, for example, I mean, they're not orcs, but they're literally called the Easterlings and <laughs> uh, they're portrayed as West Asians and they are part of the evil forces of Sauron. So yeah, not the greatest representation for <laughs> West Asians. <laughs> yeah. So I thought it was interesting that um, she decided to you know, change the the setting and genre, uh, but keeping kind of the the characterizations, right? Because it's it was already there in fantasy. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Sarah, the illustrator, she said that she traveled to Turkey and Jordan um, in the summer to get reference photos. And you could definitely see that in the illustration. Everything is like so, uh, e- even though this is a fictional world, you can tell that it's actually like based on something real. I mean, like, that's definitely uh, Petra. Like Petra, for example. Yeah. <laughs> yeah which, I was like, that's, that's Petra. <laughs> which, funnily enough, I only really know uh, because of my many years playing Sid Meier's Civilization and having Petra as like one of the monuments that you can build. Wasn't it also in Indiana Jones? It was, wasn't it? Yeah, I feel like that's where most people know it from. I mean, like most people in America. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I just loved how, I guess, like sun-drenched the colors were. Like everything was like very warm and uh, vibrant and... As someone who's consumed a lot of, like, anime and games, like, of course, you're going to come across a lot of, like, desert landscapes. And I don't know, like, it it, it, it was, so, reading Squire was, like, more grounded in its setting. And I think that's because uh, Sarah and Nadia come from um, a group of people who actually have history with the land of um, Palestine, Jordan, and Turkey. So, um yeah, like I feel like the world was very familiar, but also uh, done in a way where uh, it gives the readers room to interpret what happened to the world history. So I thought that was pretty cool. All right. But before we get ahead of ourselves, um, let's start off as we always do um, with the book jacket description of Squire. Born a second class citizen, Isa has always dreamt of becoming a knight. It's the highest military honor in the once great Baitsaji Empire, and as a member of the recently colonized Ornu people, it's her only way to full citizenship. Now ravaged by famine and mounting tensions between the different provinces, Baitsaji finds itself on the brink of war once again, and Isa can finally enlist in the competitive squire training program. It's not how she imagined it, though. Hiding her Ornu status in order to better blend in, Isa must navigate new friendships, rivalries, and rigorous training under the merciless General Hendi. As the pressure mounts, Isa realizes that the greater good Bait Saji's military promises might not include her, and that the recruits might be in more danger than she ever imagined. She will have to choose loyalty to her heart and heritage or loyalty to the Empire. So as you can glean from the book jacket description, this is a story about imperialism and nationalism and uh, what happens when you are born and raised in an empire, but you also have ties to the people who are being oppressed. Where does your uh, loyalty lie? And these are very diaspora uh, topics. I feel like it comes up a lot in in discussions with like um, with like model minority, like how that got built, and also you know how historically like Muslims have been seen as the enemy in America and like what is that like as someone who is American? Yeah I mean the book is essentially about empire right how empire creates maintains and asserts power and a lot of things that it covers like the conscription of its colonized people and pitting them against like other colonized people are all things empires have done since the days of like the Roman Empire. More recent examples would be like the English Empire and how, you know, its police force in the colonies were made up of its colonized citizens, right? And things like that. So I think it's re- it explores a lot of really interesting themes of like, what does it mean to live under uh, an imperial hegemony? And, you know, the the book jacket description at the end asks, like, what you should be loyal to, your heart and heritage or the empire. And I feel like the choice there is should never be the empire. But that's the choice that a lot of people make in pursuit of safety or stability. Yeah, I mean, the uh, topic of empire has been, empire and imperialism has been um, very much in the forefront of um, today's political climate, especially with like what's happening in Palestine right now after October 7th. Um, 
just how like a lot of people in America are now realizing that uh, they are the capital, that we are the empire and we are not the resistance. And uh, like knowing that our tax dollars are going into funding weapons that are, uh, you know, committing genocide. It's like, okay, how much of that are we complicit in? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure for a lot of people comes as a shock that like we're an imperial power, even though America has been an imperial power. America was founded essentially on imperialism and colonization. So it's like a it's a it's a piece of dark history that's hard to like confront about ourselves, especially like, you know, with like in confronting that you're we also face the same obstacles that Isa faces, which is like even questioning are we the baddies gets us accused of disloyalty, right? And that's like the worst thing ever in like a nationalist imperial system. Yeah. And uh, this is a military story. So I think we've read a lot of stories where it's like, okay, you're going into like military camp or military school and uh, you train in an empire program and then you find out that the empire is bad. So that is a trope in... um in a lot of like young adult uh, fantasy literature. Um, and I don't know, like during the training sequences in this, in this book, I just could not help but like play like Mulan's like, I'll make a man out of you. Like the background mm-hmm. music just like playing. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Um, yeah. But I loved how we are interest- introduced to Aiza in the beginning as someone who dreams of becoming a knight, dreams of becoming a squire. And um, it's, it's a little strange as a reader because you're like, huh, you're Ornu, you're part of the oppressed group of people. Why do you want to go serve the empire? Um, but it's because she's been fed this propaganda. Like there, there are all these flyers in the neighborhood square that romanticizes uh, the knights as heroes, as um, people who are on the right side of history. And that is something that we see in uh, our own world today as history is being told by the victors and how um, here in America, you really have to you really have to put in the effort to untangle yourself from a lot of the imperialist propaganda. Like if you want to know, um, you, you are taught one version of history. So um it is like a similar experience. Yeah, I mean, Isa grows up with a very limited worldview, right? In her mind, day-to-day is survival. Day-to-day is selling um, fruit, getting a verbally abused because she's different, because she's not a citizen. And that's just the life that's been laid out ahead of her. And so I think part of the Squire program is that if you become a knight— um, you, you're granted citizenship, which means more rights and acceptance into the system that she is a part of. And I think it does a really good job illustrating that us as people who have like opened our eyes to the machinations of like capitalism and imperialism, we see that and say, "Oh no, you're being you're you're falling for the lies." But for her, that's all she's ever known. So of course, she's going to take any chance she gets to to crawl out of that uh, because. The world hasn't given her or shown her any other options, right? So I think the first part, the first few chapters, um, really illustrate that. Like she is someone, she is someone who is scrappy, who is willing to do what it takes to to improve her lot in life. But the options given to her is just this one option, right? It's either this or like sell fruit for the rest of your life with your family. Yeah, and I like the fact that her family, even though they have reservations, even though they've said no to her uh, conscripting into the army many times, uh, in the end, they let her go. They, you know, it's not one of those situations where like, uh, it's it's not like a Mulan situation where it's like, I'm going to steal my father's armor and uh, go off in the middle of the night. It's like, she actually gets blessing from her family. And I thought that was like... Um, like I thought that was just like a very different side of brown parents that we've seen in uh, literature and in media because it's always just like, oh, I'm going to rebel against my parents. My parents don't understand me. But in this instance, it's like your parents understand you. They understand that you want more in your life. You want to improve your life. And um, when you're young, I mean, you are more naive, but also you're more it's like 
you're more you're more willing to risk safety for a better life. Whereas like with her parents, they're kind of at like an age where it's just like we have everything we need, even though we're oppressed. All of our neighbors share the same culture as us. They have our backs. That's all we need. That's all we can ask for. This, well, it's more this is the best that we can hope for. Right, because they've also yeah, bought it's into the best the, that we can hope for <laughs> the hegemony, right? Um, and at its core, this is a coming of age story. So um, our main character does have to start off a little more than a little naive and just a little a little dumb, right? And we we also get like your, our first like you know Chekhov's gun of the of the book, which is the her covering her arm tattoos, right, in order to blend in more. Yeah, I found out that was actually it, like I, with the tattoos. I found out. Actually, that's like based on um, like real culture. Like it's inspired by the uh, I think the Bedouins, B E D O U I N Bedouins, um, who tattoo their faces and hands, and they're like an indigenous indigenous uh, semi nomadic group in uh, southern uh, Palestine. So it's like, oh, okay, like this is actually based on real culture. Like they do have like tattoos. So I thought that was yeah. like a neat reference. Yeah, and unfortunately, those tattoos are also like. A big old sign telling everyone like who you are, which doesn't work as well when you're part of a system where any difference is ostracized. So, so it was really sad to see that she had to cover it up. But at the same time, I was like, hmm, they're, they're putting something down because eventually she's going to have to reveal herself, right? And I uh, appreciate the fact that it was like her parents who said, you need to cover this up because they already know what, what kind of treatment she's going to get at camp. Whereas like with her, I feel like it hasn't hit her yet on like how... Uh, prejudice um, how prejudiced the army can be the empire can be she had doses of it like in her um, in her life as like a fruit merchant but it's totally different when you're in an environment like the military where they're trying to uh, conform you into this one identity so yeah um, yeah that was like our first sense of foreshadowing of oh snap Something will go wrong once once, <laughs> I mean, once the cat's out of the bag. It's not necessarily like a Mulan thing, but she's definitely hiding her identity, right? She eventually like kind of smudges out her her application ethnicity um, in order to like go even more under the radar. Uh, but on the way to, I guess, um, this world's version of Petra for military training, um, she runs into one of our main like secondary characters, Husni, who is portrayed as soft rich boy yeah he comes to training camp in silk pants <laughs> and i was like boy like really <laughs> it's yeah. like are you sure this is the life for you who made you come here that and was my first reaction when he came on page yeah and he's totally bought into the hype train too like he wants he's gonna be a hero like all the other knights he knows all the knights game all the knights names and their weapons he's like a very like he's a knight fanboy yeah i think it's really interesting how um like when you go to the military camp, you meet all of these recruits who come from like different economic and uh, ethnic backgrounds. It's like everybody is here for a different reason. OK, like there are people who are here for citizenship. There are people here uh, because they think that, um, you know, knights are heroes and they want to like li live that big life. The and then you have yeah. people who they want the glory. And then you have people who are just like, I need to take care of my family. So I need the money from being a squire to send it back home. So it was nice to see um, just like how everyone's like motives for joining the military. That's like one of my favorite scenes in this book is like the letter writing scenes. Yeah, that was a really cool scene too. I really liked it because it, we don't get to see a lot of inner monologue besides like the main characters. And so to kind of see their inner thoughts and their relationship with their parents um, and how that ties into the reason why they're there, it was a really cool way to show that. I also think that like the letter writing scene reminds you as a reader that these are children. These are teenagers. <laughs> and you're like, holy shit. Like they, you know, they are put into a situation where children should never be put in. And uh, the letter writing scenes like really humanize them and really like puts them in a vulnerable spot that you don't see um, when the characters are interacting with the other recruits. But going back to when they arrive, first arrive at the um, the, the military training camp, um, this is where we first get introduced to two other characters, or oh, three other characters. Yeah. Basim, who is Husni's um, old friend and the son of a senator who is like a true believer, or 
quote unquote a true believer. Like he is here because of duty, because his it's the only way that his father will acknowledge him is this, is if he becomes a squire and top of the class and a military hero. Uh, because this, his father is a senator slash naval hero of the empire. And also um, General Hendy, who gives this big grand speech that's full of red flags, right? Um, talking about glory and service and talking about lines in the sand that don't mean anything, uh, which is really ironic because, of course, it doesn't mean anything to the empire because the empire wants to be the one that draws the lines, right? And this is where you get the sense that Isa doesn't necessarily buy into this part of empire, right? Like she feels very uncomfortable listening to that speech. Yeah, because that speech talks about the Ornu people as like the enemy of the state <laughs> and how, um, you know, the empire, like, I, I forgot the actual like speech that General Hende says, but like, I think at one point she does like allude to the fact that all oh, the empire used to be so great. Like all these different civilizations used to live together until uh, the other uh, the other ethnicities ha- like betrayed us or whatever, and it's just like it's like oh, oh I don't know. That I mean, yeah, she said something like sketch. I said she, she mentioned that, but because people want to defend like these imaginary lines in the sand, like we're not allowed to be great anymore. I do like the fact that um, once. We get to the camp. Once the training starts, Isa is not a good soldier. She is a pipsqueak. She is at the bottom of the barrel. And um, like that was like pretty nice to see because uh, I feel like in a lot of uh, military stories, it could just be like the uh, main character is like a prodigy or has like untapped magical abilities that impresses the empire. And it's like, nope, nope. Like Isa sucks from the very beginning. <laughs> I mean, there's two different versions of this, right? There's like the the power fantasy type, which is like you come and everyone underestimates you, but you're actually really good. Um, and there's Isa, who is more the underdog trope, right? She is someone who has raw potential, but no discipline. And so with training, she gets to take advantage of her unique um, physicality and strengths. And in any other like story, this would be like her her path to glory, this story isn't about imperial glory. The story is about coming to terms with what empire does to us, right? But yeah, like she starts out not being good at the thing that she believes she's destined for, um, but which opens the path, um, as with a lot of underdog stories, to finding her curmudgeonly mentor slash coach. Yeah, Doruk, our one-armed um, janitor slash groundskeeper. Yeah. Um she meets she meets Doruk when she fails the squire test for the first time and um recruits only get two chances of um passing their exam. So she failed the first try, so she is given night duty and that's where she meets uh Doruk. And um you know by her by her pluck she convinces him to train her to become a better uh, sword swordsman. So I thought that was like a really nice intro to Doruk. Yeah. I mean, we later learn or at least infer that Doruk trains her because he's taken a liking to her and doesn't want to see her sent to the front lines, which is like the punishment for failing twice, right? You get sent to the frontier um, to act as cannon fodder, essentially, for the imperial military. Yeah, and we learned that Doruk was part of the military before he became a groundskeeper. I think it's very obvious to the reader because you're like, what are the chances that you, you would have your arm cut off? <laughs> yeah. Um, I really like Dirk as a character, as someone who is like, has given in to essentially despair, right? Like he knows something's wrong with the Empire. He knows that what they're doing is wrong, but he doesn't have the the willpower to do anything about it. He thinks there's nothing to be done. So the best he can do is just... Do your best within the situation, which is the same mentality that Isa's parents have, but in like a, diff- a more like existentially depressing like uh, way, because he knows he knows for a fact that like the imperial military does very bad things to the to the people that they they conquer. Yeah, there's a quote from Doruk that I uh, wrote down because I was like really struck by it, and it goes, "Why did you come here? Money or food? Citizenship or honor?" They dangle the prize of status, mobility, a better life. They use your bodies and train you while their sweet rewards stay in the future while you toil here now. So he knows 
the cycle of uh, propaganda and how the military uh, takes advantage of the naivete of their recruits. And um, this is kind of something that we see in our own military, where they kind of like dangle, like, oh, you you can become a citizen uh, if you join the military. Oh, we'll pay for your college. And it's like, well, do you know, as someone who is as someone who's signing up for this, do you know what you're actually signing up for? Like, do you know the horrors that are waiting for you in the front lines? Like, you probably don't. And and as and Dorg, who is like a seasoned warrior and who has seen class after class of recruits go onto the battlefield and and come out changed or dead, uh, it is quite like a heavy burden uh, for his character. Which is probably why I was like gravitating towards him because he had such a rich backstory. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, all of his words of wisdom doesn't necessarily get through to Isa, right? Who only has her goal of becoming a great knight and accepted by um, her, her peers in her mind. Um, we also see that her nightly um, training sessions with Doruk is being reported on by Basim to Hende, who kind of already suspects that Isa is Ornu. Like, she's picking up on clues, right? Like, um, Isa said some Ornu words during the um, during the first wire test. Um, she intercepted... Um, she's been reading all of her recruits' mail to, like, glean intelligence. And so there's, like, you get, you get the setup that there's some, like, machinations going on with Hende. Um, but... Um, Isa's training does pay off when she uh, fights Vasim to a draw, which would have been, um, um, which shows you how how much she's grown in her martial skills. Um, and then they're sent on a, I guess, a scouting mission, right, or a patrol mission to the the um, to the border of um, the Empire and and Ornu. And this is when her squad gets gets ambushed, right? Yeah, they get ambushed by uh, Ornu guerrilla fighters. And um, this is the first time Isa is seeing her own, like, ethnic people be, um, like, have, like, the enemy's face. So it is, like, a very, like, dramatic moment for her. Um, And and after the ambush, um, Husni gets injured. And... Isa uses the bandage that is covering her Ornu tattoo in order to um, tie up his wound. Now, when I was reading that part, I was just like, hmm, I, I feel like that, I feel like you could have used other things to uh, clot the blood. I don't think it was necessary <laughs> for you to, uh, like, no, they set unwrap the your dirty rifle ass. on the mantle. So now they have to take the bandage off the mantle and fire it. That's the rules of Chekhov's bandage. I thought, okay, like, I, again, I was just like, mm, I, I felt, I, I felt like there were other ways for her to not reveal her identity, but also like save her friend. But like, I get it. It's, it's the point of, okay, like my friends are going to know that I have been lying to them and that I am. Um, I have the face of the enemy, so like I'll I'll let it slide. But that was just something that was um, in the back of my head when I was reading that scene. I mean, it was a dire situation. It was the closest thing that she had to a bandage at the time, and so I can chalk it up to her being young, impulsive, and not thinking straight. Um, so, but I don't also, think, her yeah. bandage had blood on it, and I'm just like, you are wrapping a bloody bandage onto <laughs> your friend's wound. That is just asking for infection to happen. But again, this is a middle grade, middle grade slash young adult graphic novel, so uh, none of my um, adult rational uh, thoughts on how bacteria is, um, how infections are formed, is really like I'm not the target demographic, so I'll. I'll let it slide. <laughs> but yeah, it's revealed that she is Ornu to her um to her teammates. And when they go back to the military camp, um, Isa is promoted to squire when none of her other peers are promoted. And uh General Hende pretty much uses her as like kind of like a show pony, being like, oh, look at how the Ornu can be 
civilized, can be trained to uh, be loyal to the empire. And um, it's Isa's like first time seeing how propaganda is being made from like the very beginning. So I thought that was a, that was like a great way to uh, move on to like the second arc of the book. Yeah, and how she's like an unwilling part of that propaganda now too. It's like when um, when schools have like just one person of color, and somehow they're on like every single piece of promotional graphics that they've put on online. It's like sometimes, sometimes you realize that you're the token, and it's not the greatest feeling when you do. And it makes me wonder if this is how. Um like uh, Muslim Americans feel when they like enlist in the military and they're deployed to places like Iraq and Syria. And it's just like, huh, like what, what does that feel like, you know, being tokenized, but also still being distrusted because of who you are. And we see that like seed of distrust with like Isa's peers because they're wondering why they didn't get promoted to Squire. And through like a spiral of uh, jealousy and fear, they determine that she is she has to be a spy. Like why else would she have uh, survived the ambush? Like they barely targeted her. Yeah. And it like stirs up like the the main conflict in in part two where um Isa has to deal with the repercussions of her identity being revealed. Yeah, it was really sad to see how quickly her friends turned on her um, just because of like ingrained prejudices. And this is something that's been built up for a long time. Like we're shown scenes throughout like their their training that they're being taught a very specific frame of history that frames the empire as good and everyone else as bad, and specifically the Ornu being singled out as like the worst of their enemies. And yeah, like like we mentioned before, like the history that you're taught is so important, right? Like another thing that um, I think Nadia wrote in in her afterward was like history can be just as effective a weapon as like actual weapons. And we see that being deployed even like even today, right? There's fights going on in school districts all over the country about what gets to be taught in history books. There's people still trying to frame, you know, the Civil War um, as not about slavery. People trying to frame that actually slavery was good for African-Americans, actually, um, and trying to get that taught in history books, too. Right. So it's um, the history that is taught gets, you know, reapplied as prejudice and preconceived notions of who Isa is, even though they've known her for like months at this point. Right. And I love how like they like they're not self-aware of why she would. um hide her identity they're like why would she lie to us i'm like for this exact reason you guys like simply do not like her or trust her because of her or new heritage like of course she's gonna hide it but they're not like thinking about that when when um they have like this cloud of prejudice and distrust yeah but you know isa doesn't have get to confront that because she is immediately after being promoted like taken to taken out of the training pool and into like service as a squire and you know this is everything she's ever wanted but something doesn't sit right in her and this becomes especially um, apparent when she's taken out on her first patrol into like the village at the border and she confronts one of the her attackers and like chases him down and learns that he was paid to attack the group by general hendy right and yeah it's like a test to see which one is (laughs) you know, squire material. Yeah. And her managing, I guess, managing knight is, um, gets upset at her for like leaving her post. And when she explains that she was, you know, chasing down one of the attackers that she recognized, um, the managing knight takes this opportunity to, to conduct a thorough search of the town, which involves just like kind of raiding it. Right. Yeah. Like sacking everything. Yeah. I thought um, a really poignant uh, part of that chapter was when, uh, she hunts down the Ornu uh, attacker and the Ornu attacker uh, talks back to her in um, the Ornu language and Isa can't understand. And um, like it, it's a feeling that a lot of diasporans feel like when we go back to like our motherland or we come across someone who is from the same background as us, but we've like lost our uh, mother tongue. And it's just like, okay, um, 
just like that feeling of not belonging and that in-betweenness, like that was uh, portrayed really nicely in that small um, in that small scene. It's a detail that could have just, you know, been omitted, but it was like, like I, I felt like that was a detail that made it uh, more relatable. Yeah, and I think it stings extra because like the... The Orno boy, he did it because he needs to support his family. Like it was like the famine is also affecting them, even though the propaganda says that the Orno has have been, you know, hoarding food and um and refusing to share it with the Empire. Um, I think it's her first time kind of realizing that not everything she's been taught is is true, even though like she slept through all her history classes, right? I mean, she slept through her history classes because she knows it was it was like BS. She sleeps through them not I don't think because she thinks it's BS, but she doesn't value it. It's her conveniently disregarding this part of empire in favor of the part that she likes, which is the potential for glory, right? And yeah. I think this part right here is when she can no longer turn away from it. She can no longer sleep through it. She can no longer ignore it. It's right there, right in front of her. Like this is what. This is the side that she is fighting on, and it's not the side that she wants to be on or feels good being on. Yeah, and Doruk has a similar story. We find out later um, when Isa like goes back after her patrol, and you know she is like angry at Doruk, and uh, Doruk tells her about how he was a great knight, and he like he was a great knight, and he. Um, you know, did all these missions without like questioning his loyalty until they sent him to his village. And, you know, he was told to interrogate his village elders. And that was when he learned, like, this is my limit. I can't stand on this side of history anymore, even though he he's probably done like more horrific things in the name of war. But that was like that was his breaking point. And um, and then we find out that like he gets put on trial because of his unwillingness to um, interrogate his village elders. And we find out that General Hende used to be his squire and he had trained her. And she is the one during the trial uh, to cut off his arm during her testimony, which, you know, he thought she, she was going to testify on his behalf like saying like, hey, like, you know, this is my mentor. This is my knight. Like, he's a good person. Don't judge him too harshly on just one failed mission. But she just takes advantage, runs with it, cuts off his arm. And I was like, wow, that's a cold hearted bitch right there. <laughs> I don't even think it's taking advantage of the situation. I think it's we're told that both of them are like up to their eyeballs in blood. Right. They've gone on several campaigns, done a lot of like shitty imperialist things and you know like Hende is shown as a true believer but I think it's also that she can't like it's to the point where like she can't it has to have been worth something that this this empire needs to be worth it and to see her mentor like kind of turn his back saying all the killing that we've done has been wrong I don't think she can handle that and I don't think she can admit it so instead of instead of like following his lead she decides no you're the one that's wrong. Maybe it's like this the Simpsons like meme, right? Like maybe it's everyone else that's wrong. She's also like just a really interesting character because she has internalized, like, I don't know if she's truly a true believer, but I don't, also don't think that she is like we're not really shown a lot of her like internal struggles, besides the fact that she believes the ends justifies the means, right? Which is why she does all the all the things that she does in the book. Um, but you know, in that scene where they confront each other. I know we're skipping ahead a little bit, but we do see that she she fully accepts that their hands are like covered in blood, but she like refuses to believe that it was wrong. And I think that's kind of where the where their ideologies split. Yeah, I mean, when you are the oppressor and you learn about like you know what your actions have done, what what you have contributed to to war and like you know, that part of legacy, um, you do have two responses. You have the response that Doruk and Isa had, which is, this is wrong. Um, I'm going to, you know, try to break this wheel of violence. And then you have uh, General Hyundai, who's like, 
no, the only way to make it all worthwhile, make all this violence worthwhile is to um, see it through to the end, right? See it through to the end. And also there's like this paranoia that General Hende has that um, I've seen in like imperial and colonization history. Like you are constantly um, fighting against an imaginary threat. It's like, okay, we need to be brutal towards uh, the people who are occupying this land because what if they rise up? What if they're scheming? What if their population is growing too big and they overwhelm us? It's just like multiple imaginary scenarios and they're trying to prepare for every single threat. But that threat is, you know, imaginary. It hasn't happened yet or it might never happen. Yeah. And she's kind of shown as like, I think one of the interesting things that um, this book does, like, like you mentioned, like the whole story takes place in this military camp, like away from like the capital, right? away from the seat of power of empire. And we kind of see how imperial power is, is manifested through military leaders, through oppression, through um, propaganda, teaching one-sided history, and how much power like provincial, imperial, say magistrates have, right? Like in terms of deciding who's right, who's wrong, what's a provocation, and what is a justification for for violence. Um, but never in this book do we ever see like an emperor or like even a governor, right? Yeah. Um. Um, but I think um, going back to um, Isa's tantrum with Doruk, I thought it was, I mean, it's not meant to be funny, but it was a little like, you literally got everything you ever wanted and you realized that what you wanted was not. And Dork does say essentially like, you got everything you wanted. You should be happy. Like you're going to, yeah, you're, and- you're on your path to riches and glory. And this is where you kind of get a glimpse of how deep his despair is that he doesn't think like he believes that nothing, nothing can change. The system is way too ingrained. So you might as well um, enjoy the benefits that you've lucked yourself into. Uh, but Isa, she is determined to um, bring General Hende down because, you know, she was the reason why, um, like, her team was ambushed and she wants to reveal this treason to uh, the other military recruits. But Doruk is just like, are you, like, are you sure this is something you want? And, like, what makes you think that, you know, you're going to succeed? And uh, it's very clear that... She doesn't know if she's going to succeed, but she thinks it's worth trying anyway because that's the right thing to do. Yeah, um, which is really hard, right? If living under imperial hegemony, like it's hard to do the right thing when there's so much power against you. And so, um, I mean, she's always been brave, but now she's channeling her bravery in like a, you know, maybe not more productive way but like in the more like morally like positive way right yeah i mean she got everything she wanted and now she's putting everything that she gained at risk because once she reveals that general hende has been orchestrating these fake missions with uh with the ornu guerrilla troops it's very clear that you know like general hende is not going to let that slide like She's definitely going to drum up some false charges and paint her as the enemy because she is no longer useful to the to the empire's cause. And sure enough, uh, she gets put on trial for being a traitor. Well, I mean, she doesn't even get a chance to reveal it because she gets caught in the act. Yeah. So you have Doruk and Nazir who are at the military camp. They're waiting for Isa, but Isa is not showing up. So they're like, okay, she must have been captured. Uh, they still go go ahead with the plan of revealing. Um, revealing General Hende's crimes to the military recruits. And the military recruits are like, why should we, why should we trust uh, Isa? Why should we believe you? This seems so far-fetched. And it is during this time that uh, Husni, who was on like, who was kind of like in a medical coma for like the entirety of this uh, chapter pretty much after, after uh, their troops got attacked, he wakes up. And like he's the one who's like convincing um, the rest of Isa's friends. Hey, like I was really angry when I found out that she was Ornu, but you know, after like after being bedridden, like I kind of had time to um, kind of like reflect on why she 
felt compelled to hide her heritage. And, you know, would I have given her the same chance to befriend me if I knew from the beginning that she was Ornu? And um, he says, like, I trust her. I believe in her. And we should go we should go support our friend. So that's that kind of gets the ball rolling for the rest of the military recruits to show up in solidarity. Husni has always been, you know, a a soft boy, right? Like someone who is maybe too nice to be a soldier, too too kind to be a soldier. Um, But you need people like him who are also willing to, you know, give up their own safety and stability and like put their own livelihoods at risk to do the right thing, right? Like um, change, especially systemic change, can't just come from from below. It has to come from from all sides. And I think it's really cool to see like her friends like realizing that like the right thing isn't always a hard thing. And they're going to give up all the things that like they wrote about in the letters to their parents. Like all that is going to be in jeopardy, but it's important to them that they're on the right side of things. So we see... Um the military recruits rise up. They walk in. Um, they interrupt Isa's quote-unquote trial because we all know that it's like a scam trial. And um, General Hyundai is, you know, giving one last speech to the military recruits uh, who who are there and be like, okay, well, look at Doruk's arm. Like, it's cut off. Where did the Ornus have uh, their tattoos? Like, it's on the right arm. So how do you know that Doruk isn't um, fighting for the enemy cause? And it turns, like, a bunch of the military recruits to uh, back General Hyundai. And you see a battle breaks out. And it's not gruesome, in a sense, because this is, like, a middle-grade young adult book. You don't see, like, very explicit scenes, but it's, like, these are friends who are fighting friends. These are people who you slept with, who you ate with, trained with, and now they're turning on each other. And it's it's a point where it was just like, okay, yeah, like this this is the time where you pick your side. And uh, this is the time when you find out like who are your real allies and who is willing to um, who's willing to sacrifice their privilege and their safety for what is right. Because clearly not everyone in that group was all in for uh, liberation. (laughs) Uh, But during this battle, um, Isa goes head-to-head with General Hende. Yeah, and in this final battle, um, General Hende and Dork have, like, their final face-off as well. And, you know, you get to see their ideologies clashing, right? Like, um, Hende justifies, um, tries to justify her actions, saying that, we spent so many lives, we took so many, we sent so many through deaths, all for the empire, and it has to be worth it. And Doric gives a very poignant response, which is like, those lives were never yours to give. Right? I think, and I think that kind of encapsulates the contradiction to like how empires think. Because empires, because they have to manage so many people, they instrumentalize them, right? Like people aren't people, they're numbers, they're cogs in the machine. And so cogs and pawns can be spent. And I think this is what the book is getting at is that kind of thinking is wrong, right? Like when you reduce people to just their uses, we reduce lives to um, serving a greater cause in this way. That's not like there's something wrong with that. And like that's not that should never be anyone's call to make. Which is like the downside of patriotism, in in my opinion, Um, you know, just like. Doing things for quote unquote the greater good, but does the greater good include you? <laughs> does the greater good um, really benefit all the people who fought for it? No, because most of us are pawns and cogs in the machine. Um, but Isa and General Hende they battle, and Isa is—I mean, she doesn't technically win the battle, but uh, General Hende gets crushed by a bunch of debris because uh, the building is catching on fire. And Isa has a moment to kill General Hende, but she refuses to do that. She refuses to continue the cycle of violence. Well, not just that, but she tries to save her, right? I don't think. Yeah, yeah, she tries to save her. Yeah, I don't think. She wasn't going to kill her, but she wasn't. She like General Hende was like, if you don't kill me, I will keep going after you. Like there is no stopping me. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think like and, she yeah. was 
she turned away from killing her, but like her first instinct was to save her, right? She wants to preserve life. She wants to, you know, try to save. I think this whole scene feels like a an allegory for um the like fighting against empire, right? If Hendy if General Hendy represents the empire and um Isa represents the resistance, like she's trying to say, okay, maybe there's salvation, maybe there's a way to save you, maybe there's, there's a way to save everyone. And Hendy's here saying, like, you can't fix me. I will always, like, even if you save me, I will still go after you. Like, there's no stopping. Like, there's no, like, there's no ways to fix empire. Like, empire in itself is um, is not a, it, it can only sustain itself through violence and power and oppression. Um, because it's, because the whole practice of empire is to maintain, accumulate, and project power and so there's there's no changing that right there's no way to build a more benevolent empire people have tried but it's just not possible right and you know the book doesn't really offer any like solutions to the problem except that maybe it's okay to let empire die maybe it isn't worth saving uh, and so isa ends up just leaving her there to get crushed and burned in the fire so in the end of the final chapter she is out in the aftermath of the of the fire of, of the battle, um, with the fort being burned down, uh, with General Hendy in it, um, and they're contemplating their next steps, right? And this is where she decides, where Isa decides that she she's not going back. Like even if she is redeemed and given the chance to rejoin the military, she doesn't want to be a part of it anymore. She's decided that she can't be a part of that. Consciously, she cannot participate in the act of empire anymore. And then her friends Husni and um, Sahar join her, um, deciding to like kind of go on a run together. Right, Bassem, the friend, um, decides like he has his eyes open somewhat. We didn't really dwell on him in his character. He's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a tragic character in his own because he's like he feels like glory in battle is the only way he can get his dad to notice him, um, and. Through this, he is like his eyes are open to the contradictions of empire. Uh, but he decides he's gonna try to like find his own way, maybe, maybe, um, maybe fix things from within. Um, but as we've mentioned before, there's no fixing anything from within. So, um, uh, but he's unwilling to give up his empire, right? Because he's lived his whole life for it. And then Doru decides to stay behind and stay as a janitor because um, you know the empire isn't defeated. So they still need people on the inside to like kind of look over um, the week. Yeah. And um, I've read some reviews from Goodreads and the people who have given this book, um, you know, a less than favorable review. They have complained about how the ending seems very unfinished, how everything just kind of like gets rushed and then there's no resolution. And I think that's kind of the point of the ending. That's it's like it is unresolved because revolution and social justice it's you know it's a very messy process you can't just like you know <laughs> kill one general and expect everything yeah. to be fixed the empire is still going to exist it requires a lot of manpower and a lot of organization and a lot of self-reflection to even begin dismantling that i think people are just too like star wars pilled where it's like oh just destroy the death star just kill the emperor and like the whole empire will fall which when it's like no nah, that's not how like that's not how this all works. Like, there's no like one solution. And realistically, toppling one regime, replacing it with another, doesn't solve the main problem that an empire still exists, right? Yeah, yeah. And I do like the fact that um, the authors gave Bassem, like, you know, the the grace to, um, you know, look back on on like the values that he was raised with and question it. Because it could have been easy to make Bassem a character like General Hende, who's like, I'm going to, I'm going to die by like my, uh, I'm going to die for my empire. It is the only thing I know. It is the only way to make all of my sacrifices worthwhile. It it could have been really easy to put Bassem on that path. But even though he decides not to go with Isa and her friends, like he's like, okay, I still need to like do some soul searching because the way I was raised is is not it. <laughs> I mean, I get the feeling that if there was a sequel, he'll come back fully like Empire Pilled, right? I don't know. I kind of do wish there is a sequel because I feel like there's so much of the Empire and like the conflicts that um, 
I mean, like we get hints, hints of the history, like because we um, know so much about our own history and American imperialism and colonization, we can guess what kind of what kind of stuff happened during uh, the war in this book. But I kind of wish we had like more context, like more more history and if there is a sequel i would love to see more of that and <laughs> i mean um, i think we have to look outside of american imperialism and look into like how empires have grown in other places too like ottoman empire roman empire like those oh yeah, yeah. those are all like but i'm just thinking like as people who are living under like an imperial country yeah that's just like where my brain went um but yeah if there's a sequel i would love to see Bossham kind of go through I would love to see Bossom as like the main character actually as like the protagonist and uh kind of like him go through the same journey as Isa did whereas like you know you're questioning uh the propaganda and you're trying to figure out like okay like where do my values lie and what am I willing to uh sacrifice in order to fight for what I be- fight for what I believe is right so if there's a sequel you know, I'm just saying I would like to see more. Yeah, I guess for me, I would like to like I would be more interested in following the adventures of Isa and her band of friends and see see what they become. Right. Like, will they become um, freedom fighters? Will they become mercenaries? Like they're now like kind of free from the expectations of empire, but they're also fugitives. Right. So um, like yeah. for me, I think it'd be more interesting to explore the um Especially the marches, right? The freelands outside of the imperial control to see what alternatives to empire could be. I feel like that is that would be an interesting thing to to explore as well. I mean, this book is already like pretty long for a graphic novel, so I can't really ask for like for the people who said, "Oh, like it feels rushed in Act Three. Um, like I can kind of see their point, like because it does make you want more, but also we've received so much, like from the previous parts yeah. of the book. So I can't really like, complain. I mean, personally, I thought it was a really good ending. I, I felt, I, I left satisfied that like, um, our character went through her arc and has decided not to participate in empire, which I think is like a full and complete arc. So I, I, I was happy with the way that this, this graphic novel ended. Uh, yeah. And I do like the fact that like, uh, you know, Doruk says something along the lines of, Oh, like maybe I'll hear your name again in, in song. And she says, I, actually don't want my name to be uh named in any songs or any tales of uh heroism i just kind of want to never be a part of war again and i just like how that ended like her choosing the opposite of what she had always dreamed all this time she's like i don't want glory i just want peace yeah i mean she comes to understand that songs of glory are are manipulated they're they're fake news right they serve a person which is not yeah. always benevolent and it's it's nice to see it's cool to see her come to come to terms with that and like kind of seek something new to do with her life uh we do have a comment from uh one of our patreon members uh Catherine. she says a timely graphic novel indeed reading young adult slash middle grade is always refreshing because the leads are so courageous and haven't become jaded by the world I read this by ebook format, so I do think I missed out a bit on the vividness of the illustrations. The story felt rushed to me at the end, but I think younger audiences would still absorb the lessons of the novel. Um, yeah, I do like the fact that this was a young adult middle grade novel about war and empire. Um, and there was still like a positive message to it. And I like the fact that Isa is, you know, 14 years old because we see. Like, be, because like we see the adults like so jaded, so it's nice to see, nice to see a character who is not jaded by the world, like you said, and you know is not afraid to take take the risk of trying to change uh, wrongdoings of the empire. Yeah, and to your point about reading on ebook format, I feel like because um, I've read graphic novels on my iPad before, and those screens are real good these days. So you probably did get a pretty good like version of it. Uh, um, like I mentioned, I did get the physical book and it's a, it's a pretty hefty graphic novel, like I mentioned before. So like it felt, it felt good just like kind of flipping through it. And we didn't really talk much about the art, but like Rira, as someone who, you know, appreciates like art, 
Um, what did you think about the the illustrations? I mean, it reminded me a lot of like shonen mangas that I read. A lot of the fight <laughs> scenes, I was just like, wow, this this is like straight up um, like Hunter X Hunter, <laughs> Full Metal <laughs> Alchemist. I can like see kind of like the seeds of um, uh, of just like inspiration for the fight scenes, and, and it makes sense because uh, uh, Nadia and Sarah are like around the same age as me, and they too consumed a lot of anime growing up. So, um, so, so like their um, influences, like the, it shows their inspirations uh, get shown on the page. Um, because I read this book on ebook, um, like it, like I said earlier in this podcast, it kind of like um, was watching a movie almost because I, I chose to read it in like, by panel by panel rather than looking at it from an entirely uh, bird's eye view. Um, but also like I've gotten used to reading web comics on my phone. So um, like, I feel like the way we consume graphic novels have kind of like adapted to <laughs> our, um, our preferences for reading on screen to like the younger audiences. So I, I don't know. I, I don't feel like you miss that much of the vividness of the illustration, Catherine. Yeah. Um, I don't have the vocabulary to um, to talk about, you know, comic art. Like, I can't talk about lines or coloring. All I can say is it all looks really cool and it was really fun to read. And I love that the detail, uh, I love all the details, the characters and the backgrounds too. Like, the, the settings were all very, like, it's a very distinct look. And so... Um, <laughs> I guess that's my layman's way to say it. I, I I enjoyed the art. It was good. <laughs> yeah, and I like how it is, you know, a very familiar landscape. Like we said, it was like, you know, we see Petra, we see parts of Palestine with like the all uh with the olive trees. We see recognizable landmarks. And, you know, that's kind of something that I've uh seen in just like uh historical fantasy in general. Uh, I mean, like with Game of Thrones, that's totally England, okay? And uh, with Lord of the Rings, like, you know, you when you think of the Shire, you think of like the English countryside. So there is like a familiarity to uh, those fantasy worlds. So it's nice that we get West Asia as like the main setting for this uh, for this book. And even though it's not set in like, our version of West Asia, like it's still recognizable. And I think that's really important for representation. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, I guess that'll do it for our discussion of Squire, um, a graphic novel by Sarah Afiki and Nadia Shamus. Um, If you have any thoughts about um, the book or our discussion of it, um, please let us know either on Goodreads or on our Discord server. If you are a supporter uh, through our Patreon, um, we always love to hear your thoughts on the books that we read, um, even after we've um, finished discussing them. Because because, um, I know I've heard anecdotally some people are reading along, but like a year behind us. So when you get to this book... um, let us know your thoughts. We'd love to hear about it. Um, uh, but before we go, um, we should let you know what we were reading for book club for December 2023. And this month was my pick. Um, so I chose Foul Lady Fortune by Chloe Gong. We've had Chloe Gong on the show before for an author chat for her first duology, um, These Violent Delights. Um, this is the first book of her second duology. Um, also set in... Um, pre-war Shanghai, which, as you know, is one of my favorite settings for any story. Um, This book takes place in the early days of the Japanese invasion of China and is about um, Rosalind, who is an immortal assassin working for her country, uh, who is sent to investigate a series of murders in Shanghai. Um, And in order to do so, she has to pretend to be the wife of another national spy um, named Orion. Yeah, so uh, Foul Lady Fortune is loosely inspired by Shakespeare's As You Like It. And this is a continuation of uh, Chloe Gong's like Shakespeare alternate universe uh, rewrites because These Violent Delights was like an alternate uh, universe version of Romeo and Juliet. So love to see this... uh, canon continue 
Yeah, so looking forward to you reading along to this book with us. Um, if you've already finished Foul Lady Fortune and have thoughts you want to share, um, again, please let us know either on Goodreads or on our Discord server um, so we can include your thoughts on our next um, book discussion episode as well. Um, but with that, um, thank you so much for joining us on our discussion of Squire. And we'll see you next time. Happy holidays, everybody. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Ri Ryu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Charlene Kay. I'm a musician, songwriter, and guitarist. Growing up, I loved music. Whether it was pop, acoustic, emo, I ate it all up. But as a Chinese-American kid living in Scottsdale, Arizona, I also felt isolated, never really seeing artists who looked like me or shared my experiences. So after years of performing on stages all over the world, I wanted to create a space to highlight the amazing Asian musicians who I knew were out there, just not always getting played on the radio. That's why I started Golden Hour, a podcast where Asian singers, songwriters, instrumentalists, and music producers share their personal stories. And it's a space for you to discover your new favorite artist. Listen to Golden Hour with me, Charlene Kay, wherever you get your podcasts. Part of the Potluck Podcast Collective. 